So as I said, tough text. Uh, this is what uh, New Testament scholar uh, J.C. O'Neill said about Romans 13, 1 through 7. He says, These seven verses have caused more unhappiness and misery in the Christian East and West than any other seven verses in the New Testament. So you need to come through all the snow today to hear the most, seven most miserable verses. No, I don't think that's true, but those are... Those are fighting words, right? That shows you how my mic is falling off. That shows you how just incredibly, maybe I'm too, I'm too um, expressive here. The mic can't handle me. Uh, but yeah, this shows you how difficult this is. And so what do people do when they encounter a difficult verse, a, a verse they don't like very much, well, they kind of do some mental gymnastics. You reinterpret it to kind of fit your view, and that has definitely happened, with, according to this scholar, uh, Douglas Moo. Uh, he's a scholar with the last name Moo, you know. But, you know, this, but this, according to him, this verse, people try to reinterpret and do mental gymnastics on it, try to avoid the obvious meaning of the text. He says... It is only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of the interpretation of Romans 13, 1 through 7, is a history of attempts to avoid what seems to be the plain meaning. So, as I say, a part of going to a verse-by-verse -verse Bible church like Corner Canyon is that you're going to hear the tough verses preached on. This is a tough verse. And... And a lot of people, when they approach Romans chapter 13, what they do is they have a particular agenda or view or thought process in mind. They're thinking about something, a view of the day or, or some controversy in government or society, and they, they try to reinterpret Romans 13 in light of that agenda. And what I want to say is we want to look at this text honestly with, with a sober mind to, do, to look at what it says in its historical context and everything and not have an agenda distort the biblical text. Rather, we get our agenda from the Bible, from the Word of God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at Romans 13, 1. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Some have suggested oh, Romans 13 doesn't apply to us. It says, if you're doing like a literal translation of the Greek here, it says, let every soul, like every human being, every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no, no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the reason why we should obey and be submissive to the government is because the government and the government officials get their authority. They derive their authority from God himself. Now only God and God alone is the sole, ultimate, infallible authority. No other thing can be infallible except for God. Everything else can be wrong but God himself. And so everybody else, whether you're a mother, a father, a pastor, a police officer, a firefighter, any authority that you have is derived and gotten from God. You don't, and no one has authority in and of themselves. We get our authority from God. And so part of the reason why we obey authorities is because God has put them in place. God has instituted them. And so to disobey that authority when it's a legitimate request, especially, is to disregard not just that person, but to dis disregard something that God himself has put in place. It's just to dishonor Christ. It's to dishonor God. 
And we need to address why Paul is writing this to Romans in the first place. People are like, well, why is this in Romans? Well, obviously the gospel transforms our life when we believe in Jesus. We're totally saved and forgiven of all of our sins. And Romans 12 is about that transformation and what the Christian life looks like when we're completely saved and completely forgiven, that we live a life of gratitude and joy. But there's a deeper issue as to why this is being brought up about the government in Romans 13. Because and, and it matters what officials and government uh, and who was in power at that time, because Paul says in this text, using the present tense in Greek, he says, and those that exist have been instituted by God, meaning those right now presently ruling the emperor, whatever it is, whatever emperor it is, that who is ruling right now at that present moment, that person, that person has been instituted by God Almighty. And so Paul is writing to the Roman Christians. The reason behind this is the Christians in the past have had conflict with the government. They had issues with Rome. And so what the Roman officials did, as if anyone's a troublemaker, right, in our society, someone like causes trouble, you know, uh, breaks things, you know, is, is involved in crime, the officials or the police typically peg that person, don't they? So that person's a troublemaker. That person's not a law-abiding citizen. And so that's what's happened to the Christians here uh, at this time. And that's why he's writing, hey, be careful because y'all are being pegged. You're being pegged with this kind of negative idea. And that's because 10 years earlier, before the writing of Romans, 10 years previously, which would be around 39 AD, there was a, a huge riot in Rome, where Paul's writing to. There was a huge riot uh, with Jewish Christians over Jesus. And so this riot then had uh, the Roman emperor at the time, Claudius, kicked out the Christians, which were the Jewish Christians at that time, kicked them out of Rome. So this is some pretty severe stuff. He's like, just get out of here, is what he said a bit. I mean, that's pretty intense. This is how um, the Roman uh, historian Suetonius says in the life of Claudius. He says, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome that's uh, some Jews from Rome there, because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus, which all historians recognize. Crestus is a reference, a misspelling of Christ. Because of Jesus, they were having this thing. So 10 years later, Paul says, hey, just so you know, be a good citizen because you're already pegged by the Roman government. You're already pegged from, from them that you're, you guys are troublemakers. You guys are not law-abiding citizens. And I, I want to be clear, it, it mentions the Jews here, but you have to realize that Christianity, when it first started, was a Jewish movement. And, and the Roman officials did not distinguish between Jews and Christians. They clumped them in together as a Christianity was just another Jewish sect. And so, yeah, so that if you were a Christian, you were just another sect of Judaism, so you were a Jew. So that's why you, when you see it spelled the Jews, he's referring to Christians there. And it was Christians trying to preach the gospel in synagogues and it making the, uh, the Jews who didn't follow Jesus get mad and it caused riots. And so you need to realize when Paul is writing this, there is incredible injustices in Roman society. There is racism, there is institutional slavery, which is really bad. Some people try to water it down and say, oh, it's like an employee-employer relationship. No, it was like bad, really bad how they treated people. And in the institution of slavery, they exploited women in horrible ways I won't go into. 
But yeah, there was massive inequality and poverty in first century Rome. If you were rich and powerful, you could just almost do whatever, whatever you wanted to. You could have this kind of crazy power and just, just really manipulate things. People in the lower class of things, man, they got the short end of the stick on that. Uh, and if you watch the Gladiator, the movie Gladiator, and if I had to pick between Braveheart and the Gladiator, I think Braveheart wins, but I still love the Gladiator. It's a great movie. Uh, Russell Crowe in his glory days. But, you know, you watch that and, you, you know, there, you could, violence in Roman society was promoted. I mean, they loved people killing each other. So this is a, viol a violent uh, society that exploits the poor, hurts people. I mean, they celebrated death and violence. And to make matters much worse, and this is really going to, you know, I don't like paying taxes as it is. I have to admit this. But the taxes were crazy. I mean, they were just absurd, way more than we pay today. And so, uh, and to make matters worse is, is, is the tax collectors would take a little bit off the top there. Um, and one of the times I was, I was teaching the, um, uh, the youth intern, Josh and, and Perrin, I was teaching them about the tax collectors through, um, through in and out and how they operated, right? So I got them animal-style fries and animal-style burgers at the time. And so what I did is before I got there in the car, I'd eat, I'd eat the, the top of the animal fries off. And, I, and then I said, okay, Josh, here's your, here's your animal fries. And he's like, you took, the you, took, you took the top of the animal fries off. I'm like, I just want to show you what the tax collectors did in first century. I'm trying to teach you a lesson about history here, okay? And he's like, oh, that's a great lesson. It's really, you just want to eat, you know, in and out animal fries, you know, so, which are the best, by the way, I want to say. But yeah, I bring all this up to say, because I have heard Christians say, oh, you know, our United States government, oh, it's so corrupt, evil politicians, we should go out of our way to rebel, start a militia, and tear down the government. I've heard people say this, let's succeed. I, I, I have a friend on my space, or in my space, did I just say that out loud? <laughs> I didn't sleep last night, by the way, in case you're wondering. Um, Facebook. <laughs> He was talking about succeeding from California, right? I mean, so people talk about this kind of stuff all the time. And so, yeah, I mean, but, you know, I have to say, compared to first century Rome, I mean, the Amer America, the United States is a downright dream compared to the corruption and just the living hell people had in first century Rome when, when Paul was, was writing to these, these, these Christians, now, this is really going to bake your biscuit on this one. But um, the emperor at the time that Paul is telling them to submit to is Nero Caesar. Now, I don't know how to put this, but Nero was a pretty bad guy. Uh, vicious, violent, sick, perverse on every... Mentally ill, people would, would claim... One of the most, most other than Caligula, uh, just one of the most deranged emperors ever to come, ever to exist. Um, and I don't want us to miss the profound irony here. The person Paul is telling the Roman Christians to submit to is the one who murdered Paul himself. Murdered him for following Jesus. Now... Nero is brutal. I mean, could you just imagine this? I mean, yeah, submit to the guy who's going to kill me later. I incredible. This is how uh, Tacitus, a first century historian, this is how he talks about Nero. Now, I had to really cut down this quote because it just went on forever, and one of the things you'll observe about Roman historians is they can talk on and on and on. If they were preaching a sermon, they can 
they would be a two-hour sermon. It just goes on. But I cut this quote down to show you this is how bad Nero is from an early source that talks about how he treated Christians. Therefore, in order to abolish that rumor, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians. The originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again. He doesn't like Christians. That destructive superstition is the resurrection. Not only through Judea, which was the origin of this evil. See, he hates Christians. He's not a friend of Christians, but he's talking about Nero. But also through the city of Rome. Therefore, first those were seized who admitted their faith, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, and perishing they were additionally made into sports. They were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them. Or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Nero gave his own gardens for such spectacles. I don't want you to miss this. Nero lit his gardens while burning Christians. They were screaming as he lit his gardens. You know what he would say when they were burning? Oh, yes, now they can be the light of the world. A brutal, evil dictator he was. Now... I know a lot of people who have very strong feelings about uh, a president or past president and how bad they do their job. But you have to admit, no matter how much you like this current president, past presidents, whatever it is, they are way better than Nero. I mean, all past presidents combined are choir boys compared to Nero. Choir boys, as Arnold Schwarzenegger would say in End of Days. Choir boy! I always thought it was so funny. Arnold Schwarzenegger, like the highlight of me growing up, was watching, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, all buff, you know, telling Satan in End of Days, you're a choir boy compared to a choir boy! You know, it was, so, it was like, you know, but that's what the past presidents were compared to, just choir boys compared to the, the evil, insidious, destructive nature of Nero. And that's the last time you're ever getting an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression from me, ever. Now, um, now he did, Nero did not like the Jews, he did not like Christians, and um, as one scholar put it, the relationship between Nero, Rome, and Christians was at best unfriendly and at worst openly hostile persecution. And, uh, and I have to say this because I've heard a lot of American preachers say, you know, we're under intense persecution right now in the United States, so we need to totally reinterpret and rethink through this Romans 13 thing. We, we, have to, we have to change it and qualify because right now we don't have a positive relationship right now with the state. If the first time ever, they, <laughs> one person suggested that. You know, and so we have to really just reinterpret Romans 13 because of the dark and difficult times we are in. I'm sorry. People are not burning you alive, lighting their gardens, okay? No, it's, this is a much darker time. And I, I hope we can see from the historical look at this that, you know, to, to try to say we need to reinterpret Romans 13 because of difficult times, you have to really throw out the entire background of this. And so this is, uh, I think, a mistake that is made. And, uh, and it's, it's very difficult just, just to imagine what it would be, be a Christian in that time and suffering and having your life under threat. Um, so we don't need to totally reinterpret Romans 13 at all, in, in, you know, in light of whatever current event is occurring, whatever the United States is doing, we don't need to reinterpret it, because it was a terrible time. 
Looking at verses 2 and 3, it says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And that, of course, refers to, as we'll see, the death penalty refers to punishment that the state does. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. The question that people have, and it's, an, it's a natural question, I think, that comes up when you read this text, is how could God appoint somebody and institute somebody as nasty and mean and evil as Nero? It's saying God is the one who institutes them. God's the one who puts them into power. How could God do that with somebody who is so corrupt? And you think of just all of the corrupt leaders throughout American history. You think about how crazy some of them are. I mean, how narcissistic. How could God appoint those kind of leaders and, and yet this be a part of the plan of God? And what you have to realize for a second is that government, even if it's bad, even if it's not the best, is a blessing. Think, I mean, th think, think of this way. I mean, you think of all the, the bad leaders, you know, and everything like that. But, but, I mean, generally speaking, I'm speaking generally here, most leaders would not allow people, random citizens, to go out on killing sprees on the streets. I mean, that was, that's generally prohibited by most societies. They generally, and I say generally, I don't mean in every single case, they generally provide a general structure to society, a general way that, that things operate with general order that allows some common grace and goodness and not just allow people to just ransack the streets constantly looting and killing and shooting where there's no order in society at all. And, you know, I mean, just, just imagine, I mean, you may not like the United States. You may not like it here. You may not like what the government does or the Supreme Court or whatever it is you don't like, right? But imagine for a moment, you know, Joe Biden's up there and he's like, all right, guys, well, you know, I got an idea, you know, we're just going to close this whole thing up. We're going we're gonna to stop, you know, no more United States. We're, we're closing down the government. We're no more government. We're going to close down all rule and law and society. You know, we're going to put an end to all the police departments and the fire departments. We're just going to, we're going to just, we're going to close up shop. You know, government, we get in too many fights. Let's just call it, call it quits. Now, if the United States were to do that, say, say the president did that or someone did that, and we were just to, to close this experiment of America, we were to close up the governments, what would happen in society is it would be run by the mafia, by drug cartels, by, by local warlords that have a lot of you know, guns and ammunition or power from, from, from the previous administration, whatever it is, it would, be, it would be a lot like, I mean, sadly, how Afghanistan's turned out. It would be like run by warlords, and it's, and it's a very sad thing. And so, you know, it's really convicted me personally, just like no matter how difficult the government can be and how frustrated it is, I have a very, you know, you watch news, you can get a very negative and angry heart towards the government and get really frustrated with it. But it's really convicted me because, you know, as, as a Christian, like, you know, I should be thankful for this common grace of the government that, that there's order in society, that people just, you know, can't just go out in the streets and start shooting people, generally speaking, you know, and, and that, that it restrains the evil of people in many ways. And it does far more good than it does bad. I mean, could you imagine if the United States were run by cartels? I mean, that would be a disaster. I mean, there'd be constant tribal wars and battles going on without any sort of unity with the government 
and its officials provide for us. And so I think we as Americans, we are taught not to like government. I mean, you know, we have that kind of revolutionary spirit inside of us. We don't like stuff. We don't like to be told what to do. We get angry at the government very easily. And I'm including myself in that as well. But I think this is really a, a good reflection to be thankful for what God has instituted an order and a structure to society. And thank God we're not run by cartels and warlords. Thank God for that. That's a blessing. Romans 13, 4. For uh, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoing. Now, perhaps the weirdest and most shocking statement, we're going to get to this later on, explain this, but it's saying that people like Nero and Pontius Pilate are servants of God. You know, the, it's the same Greek word, the same exact Greek word that you would use for deacon or minister in the New Testament, and that is applied to Nero. I mean, just let that sink in, and we're going to see how that works out. But I, now, I said in a previous sermon, and I, this is very key, that God, if you trust in Jesus this morning, God can never be angry at you. The wrath of God and the anger of God was satisfied on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, it is finished, it is paid in full. So God cannot be angry at Christians. But here, as you're reading through this passage, it says those who experience the sword, the death penalty, or government punishment, they are under, it says, God's wrath. It says that here. An avenger who carries out God's wrath. And you say, well, a, a Christian could get in trouble with the government. A Christian could, I mean, that's what happened to Paul and Peter, right? They were murdered by Nero. And so, yeah, I mean, the government can, can, can certainly punish Christians. And I'm sure there's Christians who've broken the law and everything like that. So how can this say that, that capital punishment can be the wrath of God when I have said previously that Christians can never be under the wrath of God because Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God in her place. We have to realize is that, is that when Paul is writing Romans 13, he has to be speaking generally here. Generally, it is non-Christians who are rebelling against the government, doing destructive things, and they face the consequences of that, which is, in this case, the minister of God putting out the wrath of God. But when Nero was beheading Paul and Peter by the sword, he was not giving him the wrath of God. This is a general statement. This is not something that, um, that would apply in every single situation. Let me give you an example. Scripture says in Hebrews 10, it is appointed that every person die once, Every person die once, and then comes the judgment. That's what it says in Hebrews 10. Well, oh, uh, you know, like, oh, well, Lazarus died twice because Jesus rose him from the dead, um, through, rose him from the grave, and so he would have died again. Lazarus is not around today. He died twice, and it says, but it's appointed that every man die once, and then comes the judgment. Well, certainly Enoch doesn't fall into that. And if Jesus comes back, we're not going to fall into that either. We, we get our resurrection bodies immediately at the second coming of Jesus. So, yeah, I mean, but what Hebrews 10 is expressing is a general principle. Generally, it's generally true, most of humanity, you're going to die once and then comes judgment. That's a general truth. And so, likewise, here in Romans 13, this is a general truth. Generally, it is unbelievers, non-Christians, who rebel against the government and face the wrath of God, who rebel against the instituted authorities and experience that wrath. Paul doesn't have in mind here Christians at all. He has in mind here non-Christians. And so, 
In fact, in Romans 12 and 13, these two are connected because he says, leave vengeance over to the wrath of God. And so then he goes in Romans 13 to say, okay, yes, the wrath of God can be expressed through the state. So we're not to be like the punisher, take on vigilante justice and so on. We're to rest in the final judgment of God and the judgment of God on people who hurt us now and the state will take care of them. That's what he's referencing here. That's why Romans 13 does follow. Now the sword here being used here is expressed because it's, it's bringing at the maximum possible punishment that a government can impose on you, and that is, of course, death. The death penalty. And so here Paul is using it, and scholars have recognized this, Paul is using sword here as uh, authorizing and legitimizing the death penalty. And if Paul were here this morning in the flesh talking to us, he would tell us he believes in the death penalty. He thinks it's a legitimate enterprise. We know that because in Acts 25, 11, he, he, he says, yeah, well, if I've done something worthy of death and I should be put to death by the state. This is what he says in Acts 25, 11. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Interesting. There he's appealing to the person who would eventually murder him. But yeah, he's saying, if I, 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 could deserve, I could deserve death by the state. I don't think I have in this particular instance, but I could deserve that. Meaning he is affirming the death penalty here. So... Yeah, I mean, this is something that Christians have recognized for 2,000 years. Generally, Christians have held the death penalty as, as, a, as a statute of the state, something they can do. And this starts off, and the reason why it's so widely held is that the institution of the death penalty comes from Genesis 9-5. From the very, very beginning, before the covenant with Moses, before anything else, the death penalty is instituted. And it's actually, as we'll see, it's done for the purpose of the sanctity of life. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, which is an expression of killing somebody, murdering somebody. By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So it's the sanctity of life. Now, some people say, well, you know, Christians, we, we hold, we don't, we're, we're not typically throughout the past uh, 2,000 years against euthanasia, against abortion. We want to protect life. We believe in the sanctity of life. And some people say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, how, how can you believe that and believe in the death penalty? Because here it's saying that if you, if you shed someone's blood, if you murder somebody, your, your blood shall also be shed because you're snuffing out somebody who's made in God's image. You know, like, aren't you Christians, I've heard someone say, aren't you Christians inconsistent with the sanctity of life? Because you believe in the death penalty? And quite, quite the opposite. Those who have murdered somebody have forfeited their, their life to right, their life to life, because, and this is the reason, is that, is that they're no longer innocent human life. Innocent human life in the eyes of the state, if you murder somebody, you, you, wave your life to, to, you wave your right to life and you are no longer considered somebody innocent in the eyes of a state. The sanctity of life is about protecting innocent human life. And if someone commits something so vile as to take another human being's life, then they are no longer deemed as innocent human beings in the eyes of the state. And so because the, the, the life of a person, they're made in God's image, because they are so valued... And so someone on the Christian view who carelessly snuffs out someone made in God's precious image, therefore the punishment for that must be severe. It can't be like, oh, well, you murdered somebody. It's cool. 
you know, uh, that's not. No, it's it, no because you have taken someone's life, and that life is so valuable. There must be a maximum penalty by the state. Now, I mean, if you look at the death penalties in the Old Testament, we as Christians don't carry that over because 2 Corinthians 3 says over and over and over again that the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of condemnation. It's over. It's ended. Hebrews 8.13 says the Mosaic Covenant is ended. And we have this command from Genesis 9 prior to the institution of the Mosaic Covenant, prior to Moses coming and writing the Ten Commandments. This is the very beginning of the created order, the society that God was bringing up here. And so this is why Christians have held to this view throughout the past 2,000 years. Romans 13, 5-7, finishing up the rest of our text here. Therefore, one must be in subjection. We don't like that. It's not comfortable. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but, to, but for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So one of the things I do is, and I'm preparing for a sermon, I'll listen to other sermons on the topic, and I was running across one pastor, and he's like, yeah, so it says, you know, taxes to whom taxes is owed, and respect to respect is, is owed. So what this passage is teaching, this what this gentleman said, is that only if the state is doing a good job, and they earn your respect, like they've like merited your respect, that's the only time you need to pay taxes. And I'm like, I guess a lot of people in your church are going to jail then. <laughs> That is not the scholarly or academic consensus of it. Like, well, I'm only going to pay taxes and be nice to the governing officials, you know, only if they earn it from me. They, they show me that they're doing. That's not what this is saying at all. This is saying that Christians are to do these things. These are things Christians are to be good, respectful, law-abiding citizens. And uh, Peter, by the way, I want to remind you, who was murdered by Nero, this is what he writes about it. He's not saying it like, oh, maybe you should or maybe you shouldn't. He's just giving a definite command here. And Paul is, is definitely going in the line of Peter here. He says in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, be subject for the Lord's sake. This is for God you're doing it. You're doing, you're obeying for the sake of God. Every human institution, whether it's to the emperor as supreme or as governors, is sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that you, uh, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish talk. Be a good citizen for the sake of the gospel. That's the idea here. We're going to look at that in a second. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are to serve others, even those who are above us. Honor everyone. Not if they earn it. Like, well, now I can pay. Now I can honor. No, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor who would soon put him to death. So we are to honor. It's hard, you know, people get very political. And so it's hard to say, if you don't like the current president, you're like, yeah, you're to honor the president. You are to pay taxes. You are to honor to the governor. That's how we're to function as Christians. Are there exceptions to this? Yes, there are. There is most certainly exceptions to this. Um, when the government tells you, hey, yeah, you Christians, you can't preach the gospel anymore, like they do in China, you know, they say, yeah, well, Christians, it's legal for you to meet and worship. In those cases, we are absolutely and positively to disobey 
the government. We must disobey the government. As Christians, whether they make a law or a decree that would make us sin against God, sin against our conscience, it says in Romans 14, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So if we sin against our conscience, we're sinning against God. Or if we're, if we're being told to do something that is against the, against the law of God, then we are not to follow that. And we actually have a clear, concrete, and specific principle laid out in the Word of God in Acts 5, 28-29. It says, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. The governing officials are saying, don't talk about Jesus. Don't preach about Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They don't want to hear about it. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. So if there's a conflict between the government and God... Every time you go with God, every single time, because God is greater than the government. He's the only infallible authority, and he is the one by which the governments and any institution gets their authority. And so, but the reason why Romans 13, people ask, why is it in here without the qualification is because Paul wants to get the point across to this audience, you know, you Christians, don't be, he's like, you Christian brothers and sisters, don't be troublemakers. I've heard uh, another minister say, you know, we have to encourage our congregants to be godly troublemakers. The guys say that. But, you know, that really does go against the, vi the advice of Scripture, the Word of God, which says we are to be good citizens for the spread and for the sake of the gospel, that people can hear that they have peace in God through Jesus Christ our Lord, by trusting in Him by faith alone. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessors, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. We're to pray for our governor. Pray for our president, even though we don't disagree, even though we, we may disagree with them, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Doesn't sound like a troublemaker there, does it? Godly and dignified in every way. So if you are the most difficult person in your church, in your homeowners association, in the city council, at your work, in society, and you are living as a difficult person, then that is not the kind of life the Bible, the New Testament, has laid out for you. Christians are called to be good citizens, a law-abiding citizen. Now that doesn't mean to say, well, I guess we just have to accept the, the status quo and be passive. You know, we shouldn't try to change society. We shouldn't try to bring transformation to uh, an evil society or people who are, who are suffering in society. No, the Bible does not teach we should be passive, but it's saying we have to go down that, that narrow line of not being this violent, protest or revolutionary type person. We're to go down this narrow line of trying to honor the laws of the land while honoring God and trying to bring betterment to our society. That's, that's what this is all about. It's a fine line. And I, I sure as don't do it perfectly, but Jesus did it perfectly for me. I love the way that Calvary Chapel uh, pastor Skip Heisig puts it. He says, a Christian, I love this quote, is to be a good citizen until being a good citizen means being a bad Christian. I want to say it again. A Christian is to be a good citizen until being a good citizen means being a bad Christian. And it, and it must be this way, because if we're troublemakers, people view Christians as just these rebel rousers, constantly getting mad about everything, causing fights, and, you know, you preach the gospel like, oh, those guys are always starting something. Let's just not listen to what they're saying. No, we are to be kind, caring in our society, submissive, submissive 
And so that when we speak out about the gospel, people listen because we've kind of, we've kind of earned that, that audience through our life and through following Christ. People are more likely to listen to the truth. People won't say, oh, you guys are just rebel rousers. Now, one thing I want to close with, and this is, I brought this up earlier, it's very, this disturbs a lot of people. Lots of people are really, this is, this is why Romans 13 is such a profoundly unpopular section to preach on. As you can see, we, tuffle, we, we tackle some very difficult topics here. But why in the world does Paul, and this is the hardest part, call an evil, ruthless, nasty, mean tyrant like Nero as somebody who is instituted by God himself. And he goes so far. I mean, this is crazy. This is a man who burned Christians' life, who murdered Paul. He was hurting God and his cause uh, by this. But actually, God was putting him in place for a Romans 8.28 reason. And God works out all things good for those who love him. Even evil rulers, even evil tyrants. And you see this with, with, with Jesus, uh, with, in Pontius Pilate, in John 19, 10 through 11. So Pilate said to him, you will not uh, speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus said to him, you would have no authority. So Jesus is recognizing he has authority there. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus admits, hey, Pilate, yeah, God has instituted you in here in this moment, right now. But, I mean, he, Pilate did something evil. He allowed Jesus to be crucified. But did that bring about a greater good? Yes, sir. Yeah! You better, you better bet your life on that. If, if, if Pilate had not allowed that, we would not be forgiven and saved from all of our sins by trusting in Christ. If, if he was, all right, Jesus, you're off, then, then there would be no sacrifice. There'd be no atonement. There'd be no Christianity. There'd be no resurrection. And so, yes, it is the case that Nero murdered Peter and Paul because they were Christian. This brought about a greater good. Nero murdered many other Christians, by the way. He, it was a massive, one of the greatest persecutions ever on the Christian church. Nero brought it about. But him bringing about this massive persecution, it brought about a greater good. This is why Christianity is the largest world religion, because it spread like wildfire because of Nero's persecution. That's the irony of all of this. This is what it says, uh, Alexander Soter puts it this way, when he talks about how whenever they killed a Christian, Christianity would spread even more and more because people were inspired. It says, we spring up in greater numbers the more we are mowed down by you. The blood of Christians is a seed of new life. And Tertullian famously remarked, the blood of the martyrs is seed for the church. It grows the church. And so, and so, yeah, this has resulted, the governing officials were used by God. They thought they were hurting and doing evil. Nero thought he was hurting, but ironically, he grew Christianity by his evil actions. God used it. God meant it for good, but Nero meant it for evil and wickedness. The risen Jesus was brought about, the, the evidence for that. And um, what, what we see, and this is especially true in Peter and Paul's case, they were murdered by Nero. And what this gives us today is one of the greatest evidences for Christianity ever that, that, that Peter and Paul were like when they were being threatened with their life. They didn't say, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Huh. 
just kidding. I, we didn't really see, we made this whole thing up to get money and, and to get, you know, popularity. Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not really, no, no, we, we made this whole thing up. No, what they did is they died not recanting their Christian faith. They died believing and trusting in Christ. And, and they, they died for their belief that they saw Jesus after he had died, that they saw him alive. And this has brought about one of the greatest evidences, as I, as I say, because they were not just saying, okay, yeah, we made this up. No, no, they said we were willing to die for this belief that they saw Jesus after he had died. Uh, and you say, well, yeah, but Nate, people die for their beliefs all the time. You know, those people, you know, crashed into the Twin Towers. You know, they, they believe that and they were willing to die for that. But you have to be careful. Listen to what I say here. Very, very careful. They, they didn't just die for their faith. People die for their faith all the time. Happens, I mean, Buddhist monks light themselves on fire. People do this all the time. No, no, they didn't just die for their faith. They died for the belief that they saw the risen Jesus and they spread that message and that they were not lying or make, they were not con jobs. They were not shysters. They were not trying to, you know, no. They, they were willing to die for that belief. And so this evidence is so strong and so powerful, it's convinced many people to come to Christianity. It's the reason why New Testament scholars don't think the disciples are all just a bunch of liars who made stuff up because they know objectively in history that they were willing to die for that belief. And so what happens is that now you have secular scholars are saying, well, the evidence of the resurrection is pretty solid, you know, I mean, it's pretty good, but I don't believe in it. And so you have somebody like E.P. Sanders, who's not a Christian, by the way, he just passed recently, actually, but he says, finally, we know that after his death, his followers experienced what they described as a resurrection, the appearance of a living but transformed person who actually had died. They believed this, they lived this, and they died for it. They died for it. So you can't say they just made it all up. They died for it. They gave their blood for it. And because God put Nero in power, he provided one of the most powerful evidences of Christianity that caused the Christian religion to spread like wildfire. And so that's why we know that whatever government officials over us, wherever the United States is at, that no matter how evil it may get, God intends it ultimately for good, as he intends all things for our ultimate good, for those who love him, who trust him. And if you would trust him this morning, he will work out all things for your good and will give you eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord forever. Let us pray and give God glory.